Thanks. Appreciate it. Well, good evening. Hey, welcome to our Wednesday night community. Uh, for those of you who, who are new to, to Wednesday night, this is, uh, this is kind of a laid back time of um, teaching and worship and, and, and connection and that sort of thing. So please feel free. You probably saw on your way in, unless it was too dark and you missed the best part about tonight, and that's coffee and snacks uh, back there. Feel, feel free to get up and refill your cups and grab another snack as we're going. If, if someone next to you is sleeping, go get them a cup of coffee or something like that. A um, couple announcements real quickly, if I can. Um, on your bulletin on the back of it, I want to draw your attention to something. We've got kind of a neat opportunity coming up here at uh, our, our local university, Colorado State University. On Friday, January 30th, uh, many of you might have heard of the Veritas Forum. The Veritas Forum is a, a Christian ministry that's been around for a number of years, uh, started in kind of the Ivy League uh, schools in many respects, that, that tries to make its way into uh, secular schools, large universities, with uh, a, a, a rational approach to the Christian faith, making an argument for the Christian worldview with grace and truth. And Veritas Forum event is happening here at CSU. And um, as you see on the back there, the title of it is going to be Irreconcilable, uh, Science and Faith. And it's going to be a discussion between an atheist and a Christian. Um, the, uh, the gentleman who, who will be representing the atheist position is Bernard Rowland. He's a distinguished professor here at um, CSU. And um, he's a biochemist. And then the gentleman who's going to be representing the, the Christian perspective is Ian Hutchinson. And Ian is a professor of nuclear science and engineering at MIT and has written um, a decent amount in the, in the area of what's called Scientology, which is kind of a whole approach to knowledge, saying is the only valid discipline of knowledge, does it only come through science or are there other valid uh, areas And our own Dr. Matt Hickey, who many of you know, standing in the back there, he um, teaches class for us. He's a distinguished professor at CSU as well. He is going to be moderating the event for us. So that means if there gets to be a fight, I, I think like he steps in and, and, and kind of does stuff. So no, this is, this is a, uh, it's a, it's a very fair, even-handed uh, uh, civic dialogue. Just a great opportunity. It's rare that these issues are discussed in a civil way, unfortunately, in our culture. This is one of those rare opportunities. So I would encourage you to get over there and be a part of that. I think it'll just be a, a great, great night. We started a series last week looking at Jesus on the big questions of life. How, how is it that Jesus answers, and kind of shocking answers, that he gives to the big questions that every single person, every single culture, we even now, existentially wrestle with and one of the reasons that that jesus of all religious leaders one reason he stands out is he gave the most shocking answers to those questions and of course we'll find is he always seemed to put himself as sort of a key player in those answers as well and so if you have your bibles you can open up to john chapter 2 john chapter 2 jesus finds himself i want you to take a look at this video jesus finds himself in a setting like this.
So Jesus finds himself in a setting like this in many respects. It's a wedding. It's the wedding of Cana. Now, here's, here's one of the huge differences that we kind of need to get her. The story doesn't really have the same impact on us. If you, if you go to traditional or, or ancient cultures, what you'll find is that there is much more emphasis put on family, put on community, put on, put on your tribe than, than we in the individual West experience. It's hard for us to even wrap our minds around that we talk about that a lot in here. And so the idea in life is that meaning is found um, primarily in being a husband, in being a wife, in being a son, in being a father, in being a mother, in be- your role, okay, which is to say meaning is primarily about your, your, your life. Meaning is found primarily in your role within this broader context of community. And so the purpose of marriage in an ancient or traditional culture, it's not primarily about the happiness of you and the other one who stand up there. That's that's not the primary thing it's involved. But the primary purpose of marriage is to is to bind the community together in a significant it's it's to raise the next generation. Because see the bigger your family is, the stronger your family is, the more numerous the families are in a particular town the better the economy is going to be in the town. The, the stronger the military service is going to be. Uh, m- more everyone flourishes in the community. If your family does well, the community flourishes. So, so each wedding, if you think about it this way, each wedding, it, it's, it's a public feast for everyone in town. Every single person who's in town is as invested in your marriage as you are, just as invested. And they have just as much a right to go, hold on, what's going on here? This is important. So it's, it's this communal understanding of marriage, not just the happiness of the couple. Now, at the same time, for the couple, this is the biggest day in their life. This is the day that, that the couple, the bride and the groom, come of age. This is the day that, that they become full, active members in society, in community. And so it, it's no surprise then that when you go to these ancient cultures, guess how big a wedding is. Like, guess what a big deal, not just the wedding, but what follows it. We call the reception. It's not a reception. This, this is a week-long, oftentimes, a week-long celebration because it really is about us as a community. We will survive. We will go on. We will continue. So these huge, huge festivals. So this is the context that we see Jesus in, in John chapter 2. And the story opens kind of abruptly with a catastrophe, something, something significantly going wrong. It's perhaps only one or two days into, what, you know, again, what's likely a week-long festival, and the family runs out of wine. Now, wine is the most important element in an ancient festival, especially a wedding. So essentially, party's over. This is done. But now more than that, it's not just, oh, that's a bummer. We wanted to party. This is an honor-shame culture. If you've ever been a part of an honor-shame culture, um, this is not mere breach of etiquette. Like, oh, we, we decided to, you know, elope and go to Vegas instead of, you know, getting married. No, 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 no. This is an honor-shame culture. This, this is a social catastrophe. This is a psychological catastrophe. This brings shame on you. It brings shame on your family. So this is a social disaster. And it's in this context that we see Jesus. John chapter 2, verse 1. We read, On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kinds used by the Jews for ceremonial washings, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. The master of the banquet tasted the water, that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. 
Then he called the grooms, sorry, he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you, you've saved the best till now. What Jesus did in Cana of Galilee was the first of his signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Copernicum where his, with his mother and brothers and disciples. They stayed there for a few days. <clears throat> okay, here's what I'd like you to do. We do this every week. I want you to turn to your table, and I want you to take three minutes. If you've got six people at your table, you only get 30 seconds. This is not a big, long story. Okay, you only get, you got 30 seconds. And I want you to, for, for, for 30 seconds, go around the table and answer this question right here. What is the worst wedding moment you have ever witnessed? Okay, worst thing you've ever seen. Now, you yourself, not like, oh, I watched a YouTube video. No, 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 like, worst thing that you ever saw at a wedding. Okay, and then we'll pull back together in three minutes. Go ahead. Okay, let's pull back. Any any horrendous stories? Any any anyone uh, people passing out? You see that a lot, like the guys who lock the knees and and then they pass. Someone actually did someone do that here? I saw a finger point like it happened to him. Okay, come up to here and stand up here while I speak. We're gonna see if you pass out again. <laughs> I remember one of my favorite ones. Not not like a you know I get an opportunity to do weddings from time to time, but like just one that I was actually in. My brother got married, and my son, who's who's in sixth grade now, he was like three, four at the time, and he was the wedding or the uh, the ring bearer, so he's carrying the ring down, and so he goes down. And he, of course, it's the fake ring. Well, he doesn't know that. He thinks it's like the real ring, so he's pumped. 
So he walks down there and he sits down. Of course, he gets kind of fidgety. So someone gave him some, some, some I don't even know, like sitting by, gives him a sticker book. And I'm not paying attention. I, next thing I know, I look over and he's got all these stickers just pasted over his face. And the, and a couple leaves, it was my brother and sister, and they leave. And he's like, they forgot the ring. So he gets up with stickers all over his face and just, boog- he's chasing them, like grabbing them, like, stop, you know, sort of thing. So, you know, all these, all these great events, you know, things always go wrong in a wedding. There's always something crazy there. So now Jesus finds himself at a wedding and something goes terribly wrong, like way worse than stickers on your face or little kids, you know, chasing after the bride or anything like that. But, but, but what's this really about? Like why this, this sort of is an odd situation. It almost, some people would say it almost like doesn't fit with all, you know, other miracles and signs and all this stuff. Well, here's, here's the key to understanding it. As we look at the text, the key to understanding is something that's said in the second to last verse, verse 11. We're told, now again, John doesn't say it's a miracle, okay? He calls it something else. He says it's a, a sign. It's a sign. Now, what is a sign? A sign is a symbol. It's a signifier pointing beyond itself to something else, like a road sign points up ahead on the road to something else also we're told and this is kind of interesting this is verse 11 says this is the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and notice it was it wasn't a public thing it was kind of a semi-public because the only people who knew were his disciples uh and then the servants now think about this imagine imagine you're a musical artist and you're going to release your new album imagine you're your political candidate and um you're running for office Imagine you're an entrepreneur and you're starting a new brand. Okay, you're going to come out with a brand new, a brand new market or something that you're, that you're branding. You will choose your first public presentation with enormous care, will you not? Why is that? Well, because you're going to control every detail. Why is that? Because your message about who you are, what your purpose is, is established by your very first presentation. Okay? Again, whether you're the politician, the entrepreneur, the musician, whoever it might be, it conveys the message of what you are about. So here's the question is, why is this Jesus' calling card? It's not about the poor. It's not about feeding them. It's not about the sick. It's not about healing them. It's not about, it's not about that. It's this sort of odd, enigmatic statement here so, or event. So what is this about? Um, is, is it just him using his supernatural power to give people a good time? Um, what, is, what does this say about why Jesus, how he understands of why am I here? Because I would suggest it does if, it, if it's true in this scenario like it is in, in all others. Is it just kind of a big wow trick, like a magic trick? No, because it's hidden. It's only for a few, and that doesn't quite fit his personality. Well, first, look at verse 9. We're introduced to what's called the master of the banquet. This is, this is the presider. This is the MC of the whole event here. Now, his job is to make sure that all the conditions that allow just, you know, festive joy, you know, the festival to go on, all the conditions are met for the celebration. He's, he's there to make sure that every, everyone has a good time, that the party, the celebration goes well. So, Here's the first thing that I would suggest Jesus is making a claim about to those who know what happened. When Jesus provides for the conditions of the festival, do you see what he's saying? He's saying, I'm the true master of the banquet. I am the Lord of the feast. Now you might go, wait, 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 wait a second. We, we, we talk a whole lot about... Um, you know, I thought Jesus came to humble himself. I thought, I thought Jesus came to, to lose his glory, to be rejected, to, to suffer on a cross and die. Did, didn't Paul say, I've committed to know nothing but Christ and him crucified? Yes, of course. That's absolutely right. But Jesus is putting even, even the cross, even the worst of all atrocities, he's putting even that in its proper context. See, Jesus said, yes, I'm going, I'm going to suffer uh, there, there will be self-denial, there will be sacrifice, first for me and then, and then for my followers, but it's all a means to an end. That's not the end of the story. See, that kind of understanding is what, is what led you know, 
Gautama Buddha who, who, who began Buddhism, the realization that life is just horrible and it's miserable and it's awful and there is no end. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. There's nothing good or beautiful to say. Well, then life is sort of just the goal is to extinguish it, to be done with it. This is what led the ancient Greeks like you know, Plato to say, well, then this must be a prison and the goal is to get out of it. And there's just if we could just be done with this because there's no real hope. So it's either eat, drink, and be merry, live it up because it's all done, or, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter, end it now. As one of the great uh, philosophers of this last century, atheist philosopher said, the only philosophical question left, Jean-Paul Sartre said, is why not suicide? Because there's no meaning. Life is hard. Life is harsh. And the fact that we live in a moment in history when we're able to pacify ourselves against the reality that life is, is harsh, it is. It's very difficult. So Jesus is saying, yes, it's hard. In fact, the Christian is told, you're going to have even worse hardships. Other things come into play when you follow me, but it is a means to an end. It's all going to be brought about by resurrection. New heavens, new earth is the picture in Scripture. The end of all evil, the end of death, we're told, the end of tears. Remember, the, uh, there's a legend of this Greek god, Dionysius. Uh, Dionysius is the god of wine. This is, this is the god of the fraternities, okay, if you want to think about it that way. This is the god where in the forest, I mean, the forest run with wine, and there's music, and there's, and there's dancing. That is nothing. That is nothing compared to the eternal feast that Scripture has in mind, that Jesus has in mind, that the whole Old Testament keeps referring to, alluding to, as this ultimate goal in history. So Jesus says, and those who believe in me will have within them, we talked about this last week, a stream, a stream of that eternal joy, of that kind of festive joy that this is all about, kind of a foretaste of what that will be. And that that taste of joy in the hardest of times, in, in the most dry of times, it'll be like living water. See, that's ultimately, Jesus says, what I've come to bring. That's why this is, I would suggest, his first sign. Do you know what the Bible has to say about the end of time? You know, when it talks about the final day, the end. I wonder if that's what Jesus was thinking about here at this moment, at this wedding. Listen to Isaiah's prophecy of this, this eschatological end times kind of picture of what it will be like. Isaiah 25, verse 6, we read, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud. Isn't that an interesting word? That shroud that enfolds all people. The sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forevermore. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tear from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord's spoken, meaning he guarantees it. It's his promise. J.R.R. Tolkien, in, in his book, The Lord of the Rings, the third volume of it, when, when Samwise Gamgee is rescued from the fires of Mount Doom and he believes that Gandalf is dead, their advisor and everything else, and, and, um, but uh, he, when he finds out he's still alive and he finds out what all ha- has happened, he says this when he wakes up. He says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue, he asks. Is everything sad going to come untrue? See, the whole Bible says that's essentially what Jesus is going to do in the end. That we're not going to be taken out of this world to heaven. That is never the picture in Scripture. The picture in Scripture is that heaven is going to come here and renew this. The dwelling of God is with the dwelling of man here, new heavens New earth, at the end of it, he will renew the world. He will wipe away every tear. In essence, everything sad is going to come untrue in the person of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, that's what I've come to do. That's why this is my calling card. Fyodor Dostoevsky, 
wrote a book, famous book, a great novel, The Brothers Karamazov. And there's a scene in this book where, where two people are arguing, and the, the point of the discussion is, can anything be done about all the rottenness in the world, the evil, the brokenness, the things that go wrong? And it's one character, Ivan Karamazov, in particular, talking about there being any possibility of there being some sort of way to make sense of suffering. And here's what he says. Listen to his words. I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for. That all the humiliating, absur- humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. That in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonements of all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify everything that has happened. See, this is Dostoevsky's Christianity surging through, even through his novel novel in this character. He says that he believes at the end, the reality of that end will be so astonishing The joy will be so absolutely incredible. The fulfillment will be so full and amazing that, to use the phrase of um, St. Teresa of Avila, it will make the worst life you can imagine, the worst life here, it will make the worst possible life seem like one night in a bad hotel, she said. Wow, that's got to be a pretty big thing to make it look like that. So, what did Jesus come to bring? And if you, you, you've got in your bulletin, there's a few sections in there. The first one, what, what did Jesus come to bring? And the answer is joy. Festival joy that, that he's hinting at through this event that he stepped into that is broken and messed up. See, that's why, that's why this miracle, as we might call it, is, in, is his inaugural sign. He is the hope, is what he's saying, of all of Israel's histories, all of Israel's prophetic hopes. He's the fulfillment of it. So that's that's why there is one. Actually, I meant to put what this. I kind of meant to write why. It's kind of a second point in there, and I forgot that. So if you if you want to add in there why below that, why did he have to bring it? Here's why he had to bring it, and this kind of touches on what we talked about last week. Now, there's this catastrophe here in the wedding, right? Uh, they've run out of what it takes to keep the party going. This is, this is shame on family. This is guilt on them that they didn't prepare enough. Um, verse 6, Jesus covers the couple's approaching shame. It hasn't quite hit yet. By, by filling up what we're told in, in the passages, six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for what? ceremonial washing. Now, in Old Testament Judaism, there was a massive amount of of rites and regulations which required all kinds of uh, physical cleanings and and, and physical purifications. Uh, Even before they would ever make it to sacrifice, to wash hands and wash this way, do all of these elements of, I need to clean up before I can approach God. Because here's what... God was trying to teach him. He was trying to pound into their head two things. Number one, that God is holy and perfect. This isn't, this isn't approaching someone and saying, oh, hey, buddy, hey, old chap. No, this is the God of the universe. Completely holy. And they needed to learn this idea that they couldn't kind of just saunter into God's presence. It's no small deal like that. But secondly, it was to teach them in this context that, that they had a need for atonement. They had a need for cleansing. They had a need for pardon. Again, they can't just saunter up to God. So Jews had purification rites even leading up to sacrifices. That's what these jars were for. These jars in their mind symbolized, oh yeah, that's all the stuff we have to do to be presentable before even making sacrifice coming into God's presence. And so by employing these jars, the fact that Jesus goes and he gets these jars for this event, normally used for 
ceremonial washings like we talked about. Jesus is saying that he has come into the world to accomplish in reality what, what these ceremonial jars and the whole sacrificial Old Testament system were pointing to. All those things that were, I came to fulfill what they were, they were signs as well. But they were pointing not to another jar, they were pointing to, to me, to a person. And so we can't understand, I would suggest, the joy that Jesus is talking about here, unless we understand that word, sin. And, and again, I get, we talked about this last week, we understand, you know, people kind of recoil, you know, about that idea, but... We have to understand that we're stained, that we need purified. Uh, We have guilt and shame. We we need to be rescued from it. Not just conned into believing, oh, it's no big deal. It's all right. It's just just your conditions or it's just this. No, there really lies within the heart of the human person the brokenness. It's out of the heart, Jesus said, the mouth speaks. Out of the heart that we act. That's the center of me. That's the me me. (laughs) I can't get away from that. And I would suggest that every single person, even, even, you know, you might say, well, I don't believe in all that, you know, kind of sin stuff. You know, I'm a humanist. I believe that, you know, people are basically, you know, good. And so there isn't that sense there. I would say that we, we, we know it deep down. We feel it at the very least. If not, why are you working so hard? Think about that. Um, why do you need to be right all the time in your relationships? Why do you worry so much about how you look, about when you walk into a setting, how it is that you're perceived or how people think? Or when you speak, why are you so worried that you know, people think that you're you know, educated at a, at a certain level? Why do you feel the need to kind of tell people, brag on things that you've done or your accomplishments or talk? Why do you kind of feel that? Why do you hope people will see it and make it look like you didn't really have to bring it up in some way? See, you know something's wrong. I know something's wrong. And I'm trying to purify it when I do that. I'm trying to kind of prove, I'm trying to cover it up. One of, um, one of my great like, like celebrations as a dad is getting to show my oldest boy, who's, who, who's 12, like movies that I loved when I was a kid, you know. So he's kind of slowly getting into like, okay, you can see this one, I think, you know. Um, you know other kids can't, they're not old enough. So, well, like I loved Rocky growing up. That was like one of my favorite things ever. Like I was Rocky for Halloween one year. So I show, I show my son, I start with Rocky three because that's like the best one. You got to start three and four for them to kind of get into it. And so I start with it and Keaton is like, thinks Rocky Balboa is the cool. Like he's walking around going, Hey, no, Hey, your dad. I'm like, no, no, don't, that sounds stupid. You know, but I realize that's what I did. So he's, he loves Rocky for Christmas. He got, he got the, the, the DVD set one through six, like all of them. And he's, he's pumped. He was Rocky Balboa for Halloween this last year. And I was like, yes, yes. And all his friends are like, who's Rocky? You know, and, and adults are like, are you Rocky Balboa? Um, so it's this, you know, this totally cool thing. There's this, there's this scene, though, in the very first movie of, of Rocky where um, Rocky is, he's coming up, you know, against this big fight. And um, he's lying there with his girlfriend. And he, he has this moment, you know, Adrian. And um, he's got the big fight coming up. And he's telling her, he's saying, I don't have to finish it. I don't even have to go all the rounds. And this is his language. He says, I just want to prove something. I ain't no bum. It don't matter if I lose. Don't matter if he opens my head. The only thing I want to do is go the distance. That's all. Nobody's ever gone 15 rounds with Creed. If I go them 15 rounds and that bell rings and I'm still standing, I'm going to know then I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood, he says. See, I, I would propose to you that he's simply being really candid about something that most of us are not that candid about, something internally in our lives. See, we don't want to just do well in life. We don't, we don't want to just, oh, I want to make a you know, contribution to society. I want to make my mark. No, deep down, we kind of feel at some soul level, we worry about, I'm just a bum. What if that's all I am? What if I really am that? And the reason we, we feel that at moments is because something's not right inside us. We, we know, we feel, deep down, we know something needs to be made right in our lives. Now, to put it another way, use some biblical imagery. Genesis chapter 3, 
When Adam and Eve rebel from God, they, they eat of the apple. They turn away from God. Immediately they feel, remember, it says that they, they realize they were naked. And there's this, there's this sort of covering up. There's this sort of you know, positioning and, and uh, just like I'm not, I'm not comfortable with myself anymore. And so we see them, even in front of God, they say there's just something about even I don't want to be fully seen by God. There's part, I just, and I don't even entirely know why. And so they put fig leaves on themselves, we're told. Well, here's what I'd like to ask you. Consider, consider for just a moment the possibility that your success that you're striving for is a big fig leaf. Consider for a moment that that relationship that you maybe you have or you desperately want to have is kind of a fig leaf. It's that thing that if you just kind of had that, you wouldn't feel like a bum. You would kind of feel like that, that sort of gives me significance. And remember last week we, we talked about this idea that the definition of sin is to build your identity on anything else but God. Well, that's that awareness of sin that I'm broken and I need to be set right. There's something deeply broken in my soul. So finally, how will he do it? How will he bring about this inner setting, right, this inner purification, this inner cleansing in some way? Now, we don't really know in the text, and this kind of gets to the heart of the narrative story. We don't know why Mary, his mother, goes to him. Uh, she, you know, he hasn't you know, performed any signs or miracles. It's very likely, according to tradition, that she is, she's a widow. She's relying upon her eldest son. And she's learned, which would make sense if Jesus was your son, that he's probably pretty good at figuring things out. Um, and so she goes to him for whatever reason, we don't know, and, and, and says, uh, they're out of wine. And his response is, woman, why do you involve me? Now, what's happening? Every commentator you read will tell you his response. It's not rude, but it's curt. It's abrupt. It's short. Again, it's not completely offensive, but it's close to that. It would be maybe the closest thing like calling your mother ma'am. And I don't mean like if you're from the south and you say, yes, ma'am. Ma'am is a distance word. And her, in an in a intimate way, talking to you and then calling her, listen, ma'am. It's just, it's not rude. But again, it's sort of what's go- something, are you upset? Are you bothered? Now, Jesus isn't easily irritated. We know that. We see him on the cross being crucified. And we don't see him losing his temper. He isn't a guy who, who flies off the handle. and says, So what's going on here? Why does Jesus respond in this way? Well, something is weighing heavily on him. And he does let us know. He says the very next verse, he says, my hour has not yet come. Now, all throughout John, this phrase, my hour, refers to Jesus' death on the cross. Okay, so that's what he's alluding to. Mary might not exactly know what that is, probably doesn't. But see, here's sort of the oddness about this. Listen, listen to how this would you know, come off. Um, she says, boy, this is a disaster. a disaster. We're all out of wine. And he says, why are you talking to me about it? I don't want to die yet. What? Like, that's a non sequitur. What in the why wine? I don't want to die. Like, what, what's he thinking? What's going on in his mind? What is he thinking? Why, why does he connect this simple request for wine to the hour of his death? Let me ask you this question. What, what do single people think about at weddings? What do they think about? Maybe lots of things. They look forward to their own, don't they? You ever see a single person at a wedding in the fun, and they're kind of sitting there with like a far-off look on their face? And they're just kind of like, oh, <laughs> why is that? They're looking past the event, past the ceremony, past the cake, to their own ceremony, their own cake, their own moment. They're thinking about that event. Well, that's what Jesus is doing. What? What do you mean he's looking forward to his own? In the Old Testament, God wants, when he wants to show the people how he feels about him, he says, I want to relate to you in a lot of different ways. Not, but not just like a king relates to servants. Yeah, there. But in the Old Testament, God culminates, meaning at the highest point, the like, here, so I really want to interact with you, my people. He says, I want to, I want to relate to you like a groom does to his bride. This is a this is a profound, intimate love relationship. And so God constantly in the Old Testament presents himself as a bridegroom. Now, later in this same gospel, the gospel of John, Jesus' disciples are criticized for not fasting. 
hey, how come your guys, your apprentices don't fast? John, you know, the Baptist, his are fast. They're always walking around and, you know, kind of looking, oh, you know, haven't eaten. I'm tired, you know, fasting. You guys are like always celebrating. And Jesus' response is this. Why should the friends of the bridegroom fast when the bridegroom is still there? Did you hear that? Jesus calls himself the bridegroom, fully aware that all throughout Scripture, it's only the God of the universe. It's the creator who can be the husband to his creation, who can be the groom to Israel. Now, this same writer, John, years from this moment, writes the last book that we have in the New Testament called the book of Revelation. And he writes in Revelation 19.9, actually first 21 to, let me read that one. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, come down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. He's picturing that's at the end. It's a wedding feast. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. See, in other words, at the end of time, there will be a feast to end all feasts. This this will not be simply a generic banquet. This is going to be something that the celebration is long, but the celebration is about an intimate, permanent relationship between two parties that lasts forever. It's as if Jesus is looking past his mother, past the celebration, past the festivities, past the groom, past the bride, and he's seeing something else. He's saying, Yes, I can bring festive joy to the world. I can cleanse humankind from its guilt and shame. I'm going to have to be the fulfillment of the ceremonies of what all these jars were pointing to in the Old Testament. I have come into the world for that, yes. But something stands in the way. I'm going to have to die to do it. And here's a, a couple questions I would ask you. Do you know why he did that? You. He did it for you. You know, one of the opportunities that I have, I mentioned this earlier, as a pastor here at Timberline Church, is to perform wedding ceremonies. And I've, you know, used, like the, you know, the groom stands here before the bride comes down, and the minister stands right next to him. And so, like, you get the closest shot to, you know, what the, what the groom is looking at. And what happens every single time, you know, this bride comes walking in, and sometimes they haven't seen each other, and the groom stands there, and she walks in, and she's gorgeous. And that's not just like you just say that because, like, oh, you look very nice. Kind of. I mean, they really are. They're, some of them, you know, they've been, like, exercising for months, and they've covered all the blemishes. And they're, they're beautiful. They're radiant. And the, groom, the coolest thing is to look like this, and I look at the groom's face, and he's, like, coming out of his shoes. I mean, he could hardly, because he's just like, she's hot, man. <laughs> he's so excited. He is so pumped because this is the most beautiful he's ever seen her is it possible that jesus thinks of you like that see some of you even asking oh that's kind of uncomfortable i would suggest it is and i would suggest that what what would your life be like if if you lived your daily interactions in this sort of existential awareness that god thinks of you like that that jesus is jumping out of his shoes not because you've cleaned yourself up, not because you've covered all the you know, bad stuff, but because he has. Because he, he sees the real you. Remember, he's the only one who can purify. He's the only one who can set right. And so you come down that aisle covered, not because you've kind of tried to you know, poison, make yourself presentable, but because he has covered you in his own goodness. And as the band comes, I want to, we're going to take communion. I want to end with one, one thought for you. We've talked a lot tonight about this idea of we live in a really, really broken world. Uh, we have relationships that are fraying. Uh, we live in places where unemployment's a reality, where relationships with children are, 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 are fractured, spouses. Our career isn't where we thought it would be. All the hopes and the things that we've worked so hard for can be gone like that. It could be retirement. It could be a place where you've reached retirement. All of a sudden you feel this sense of this lack of, 
of meaning and what was it all for, whatever it might be, huge decisions to make. I would encourage you that, and suggest that this reality, if, if, if you really take this in, this will give you a buoyancy to live in life that you will not have otherwise because of Christ. Um, let me put it in the words of Dr. Edwin Clowney. He, he said this, you notice in the midst of this wedding feast, people are celebrating, they're, having, they're partying, they're loving things, even after the wine's out. And Jesus is kind of the solitary figure. He's sitting there, obviously emotionally kind of weighing some things in his life. And when you see him there at this feast, everyone's drinking, having a fun time. Jesus was, in a sense, tasting the bitterness of his own death that lay before him. Now, here's the cool part. We don't have to do that. And here's what I would say. Let me put it in his words. Jesus sat amidst all the joy of the wedding feast, sipping his coming sorrows like a little cup aware yeah it's fun and it's great but he knew what it what it would take so that he did that so that you and i who believe in him can sit amidst the world's sorrows sipping a coming joy and i would suggest that this is what one of the things that we do every time we take communion and we do that every week here and and this evening we've got five different stations around the room and if if you have thrown your life in with christ I'm going to invite you to come forward during this song, take a cup, take the bread, and you can take it on your own right there. You can go back to your seat and take it, and we'll pray when it's all over. But let this be a stake in the ground, a flag of saying, maybe amidst a really, really tough situation, circumstance, of saying, Jesus, because you sat amidst a party and the joy and, and you sipped your own sorrows, you did that so that I could sit amidst just a lot of chaos and a lot of messed up things, and I could sip the coming joy. And I know there's light at the end of the tunnel. I know resurrection, new heavens, new earth is my hope. And you've guaranteed it. And this is how much you've guaranteed it. Signed it in blood. And then we'll pray together. Father, thank you that we come to the one who turned water to wine, 
not as a magic trick, but as a sign pointing to the reality that he is the Lord of the feast. And God, we oftentimes live in famine. We live in difficulty. We live in realities which are sometimes harder than we can bear. We feel like we're just barely getting by. Or we find ourselves riding the top of the wave, but, but finding our identity in the things that we are pursuing that are not you. God, wherever we are, God, would you bring us to a place and just shatter the deafness of our ears? God, may we, may we peer upon the face of Christ, the winsome face of Christ, God, that we would just run to him, that we'd find our identity in him, that all our other pursuits in life, God, would, would fall into place in the reality that, that we have a God who did so much for us, who withheld nothing, who pursued the cross for the joy set before him. And that's to be our groom. And that he looks at us not because we're perfect, but because of his own grace applied to our lives. He looks at us as a radiant bride. And we're sometimes embarrassed that he calls us that, but it's because he's made us right. He's made us whole. And God, would you challenge us this week to just live in that reality moment by moment every day that we're loved that dearly by Christ. And Lord, we're so thankful for what you're doing. Thank you for, thank you for your word, God, that is powerful, that moves deep into the place of our heart like wine does, and it transforms, and it starts a new spring out of which grows new life. And so may we find ourselves there this week amidst all the difficulties and challenges. Thank you for your spirit, God. We are grateful. We go in his power. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And we all sit together. Amen. Amen. Hey, so glad you guys were here tonight. Thanks for being a part of Wednesday night community. Thanks for caring about the people around you and reaching out to them. Uh, Go grab your kids. Feel free to bring them back and finish off the snacks. We'll see you guys this next weekend.